0: Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the CoopCast. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and this episode of the podcast is a real treat and sadly, a topic that we don't discuss nearly enough. It is all about mental skills for Ultra Runners. On the podcast today, I have Kareem Ramadan, who is a PhD candidate specializing in sports psychology and in particular, self-talk i came across kareem's work during research for the second edition of my book where i quickly came to appreciate his take on self-talk as well as how all of the various mental skills of awareness focus self-talk imagery and the like can be organized throughout the year i don't need to tell you that mental skills are important particularly for ultra runners Cliches like ultra running is 90% mental and the other 10% is mental, and the longest distance is the six inches between your ears abound in the sport. But those cliches are just that. They are noise and provide zero direction on what you should actually do. The fact of the matter is, is I have always viewed performance through a psycho-biological lens, where your physiology... Things like aerobic capacity, muscle strength, and bioenergetics determines your maximum capacity for performance, and psychology determines how much of that capacity you can actually utilize. This is an important framework to understand because mental skills are literally the key in making the most out of your physiological limits. Yes, mental skills are skills nonetheless. And you have to develop them alongside the intervals, the miles, and the vertical we typically refer to as quote unquote training. So, during the course of this conversation, in a practical and actionable manner, we walk through these different mental skills and, more importantly, how you can lay them out and implement them throughout the year. There's an order to developing mental skills, just like we view an order to building our physical skill set with mileage and vertical. Kareem also takes this opportunity to humbly put me on the psychology couch for a few moments of a quick analysis, and I hope you all have a lot of fun with that. I hope you find this conversation enlightening on how you can improve your mental skills for ultra running. So here we go, let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Kareem Ramadan.
1: I like how you're approaching your book. always attracts me to find books that have this um, foundation over scientific work and then when the author or the coach takes it to the actual practical field uh, to make the link between research work and the practical field is uh, something that we kind of at least in sports psychology is something that we actually lack so this uh, connection that you're making is something we really need for the advancement of sports psychology because we have a lot of research work that is not directly tested and reported by those who are doing some practical work back to the researchers. Um, This is something we're trying to do uh, here in Greece uh, in the University of Thessaly. Uh, We're trying to really apply our research work in the field and try to report back and see what to manipulate, what to change, collect more data because we really need to get more into the mind of athletes in specific sports. And if we want to think how detailed things can be, we can even differentiate between, let's say in running, you have so many distances and disciplines. And uh, sports psychology, mental training, and self-talk in specific would differ between all those. So it's not, you cannot apply what you could use with, a, let's say, a marathoner with an ultra marathon runner. It just doesn't work.
0: A hundred percent. And one of the confounding things that I have, that, that I've struggled with a lot in ultra marathon specific and specific with sports psychology and self-talk is that, and if you look at the traditional endurance disciplines, a lot of the sports psychology is, I'm, I'm going to totally kind of like bastardize this to somebody like yourself who actually formalize for who I, who actually studies it formally. But a lot of the sports psychology that athletes use are to essentially like amp themselves up or to like be very intensive, I guess is the best way that I can describe it. You know, it's like, go yeah. push. Let's see how hard I can, you know, make this effort. Let's see how hard I can push at the end of the race and things like that. But because of the, the duration of ultramarathon running and it's so low intensity and requires such patience there's there's the need for this undulating ability to push and then back off at the same time. And you even see that with like the associative strategies and the disassociative strategies, right? Where you can be very internal and monitor your breathing, but you also need to like check the scenery out and just like escape from the, from your current reality for, for a certain point of time. So that, that's what it, that's what makes it so confounding for me. And I'm really happy to hear you say that, that the translation mm-hmm. from the scientific world, to the field of play or the field of practice is extremely difficult because we even find that difficulty in, in, in a physiology setting, right? But it's even more difficult in a psychology setting.
1: I was studying psychology in my bachelor some years ago, and um, I have a friend of mine who participated in a half marathon, and he decided to jog it Let's say he could finish the half marathon in one hour, 20, but he decided just to go for two hours, two hours, 15, something like this, just to feel the spirit of people. He really wanted. And then when we finished, we, he was sharing the experience and he said, he was making fun of it, but it got to me in a way in a different perspective. He said, uh, I was motivating a lot of people that were walking. And I would say, okay, come on, let's go. And then you'd see them sprint and then stop to the walk again. Um, and they're like an hour away from the finish. and this. Here, it just caught to my head to the term of management, effort management, or where where can we fit uh, motivational cues? This is now how I look at it. So self-talk or let's say mental training in general is quite broad and um, we can really structure it in depth. And when we speak of a half marathon, I mean, I have a few athletes who are specialized in half marathons. I don't think we ever used motivational words, uh, not even halfway through never. Right. Uh, it just puts you at a different level. Of course, it's something individual mm-hmm. what suits the athlete, but in general, we stay away from something that pumps you.
0: And, and so what you're saying is, is, is like, even in a half marathon situation, at least in the first half of it, there still is this undulating piece of, you need to stay relaxed and you need to, and you need to push. At different actually, we can time. go shorter
1: than a half marathon. Uh, our latest experiment in self-talk um, practical experiment was about a year ago. Uh, it was with a group of 20 people. Um, it's not published yet, but I can share the results. Um, 20 people who took self-talk uh, intervention and 20 people who did not. Uh, we noticed that, or actually we used the um, uh, maximal aerobic speed test of which the runners, according to their coach, they had to run two kilometer time trial. Uh, what we did when we retested them with the self talk strategy is we did not use any motivational word until the last 400 meters or a bit more than the 600 meters. So even in a short distance, two kilometers, motivation does not, like a motivational keyword, will really put you out of your effort. And this brings us to the notion of we kind of have to redefine or re-explain what the um, mental toughness is or, mental, uh, or what's mental training or what do we expect from mental training. Mental training does not really put you above your physical capacity much. It helps you manage it. It's just about management and being smart and aware of what's going on. If you start too fast and you already have blood lactate accumulating too quick. You just cannot push on the third quarter or the fourth quarter of the race. You just can't. So it's just about really good management.
0: There's this really famous quote by one of the original, one of the originators of sports psychology, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name so you can fill it in if I, uh, uh, if you can come up with it, but he described it as physiology determines your maximal capacity and psychology determines the amount of that maximal capacity that you can actually utilize that. And that's the, that's the sentiment, right? We all have our physiological. Yeah. And that comes from the, the kind of some of the origins of the psychobiological model of, of fatigue, which are, which you're very familiar with, but let's try to like, give this some structure, right? Cause I want to, I want to mainly talk about self-talk and athletes as you have encountered in your practice, their construction of self-talk tends to be a really narrow one, right? They think about it as a coach yelling at them, like basketball or football type of setting, right? A coach yelling at them or them trying to like motivate themselves for for a specific task. But in reality, there's this really broad array of of different types of self-talk that athletes choose to use and also can use and some of them may be more effective than others in certain situations as we've already been alluding to <laughs> earlier so yeah. let's like set the table with that first and kind of describe what all of these different I, i'm going to call them methods but i don't i just I, I don't even have the vocabulary to describe it right
1: okay if we want to just describe what self talk it's yeah. quite simple it's the inner dialogue that we have we can never stop self talk inner dialogue. It's always ongoing. Uh, If we want to take self-talk to the world of sports, we need to utilize it or uh, modify it the best way possible to perform the best way possible. Uh, Self-talk first is organic. It's something that comes organically. Uh, This organic self-talk can be divided into different types. It can be positive, it can be negative, and it can be neutral. Now, from these types, we can also divide it into, um, once we, we start to, to modify self-talk or use self-talk strategy, we would call it structured self-talk. We start to structure things. In structural self-talk, uh, we can also divide it into different categories. Um, it can be motivational, it can be instructional, that gives a certain instructional or technical. Um, we can call it whatever we want. And it can be recently, this has been added, called goal-oriented self-talk. This is the latest uh, additive. Um, So yeah, this is how we can somehow structure self-talk. Once we start to explore our own organic self-talk, then we can start to modify and see what's going on. Because if we want to use traditional methods, or what organically comes out of coaches, we hear a lot of coaches tell their athletes, Try to focus what happens. How do we try to focus? I I never understood this. I had a coach when I was a kid yelling at me, it's telling me like, uh, try harder. I would just push (laughs) uh, push as much as I can and then I collapse. I I never got it. But also we can look at it in a different way. And a a word or a thought in our head becomes an image. It's quite basic. If I tell you now, don't think of a pizza. You have a pizza image in your head. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just by saying the word. Right. I'm sure you had. Right. So, no, 100%. I want pizza now. So once we have a thought, the thought will become an image and the brain will follow the image. This also brings us to coaching methods. Um, we kind of like to tell the coaches not to tell the athlete what they don't have to do. Right. But rather tell them what, what you want them to do, the direction you want them to go to. So this is quite something basic with self-talk, never start with something or never state something you don't want to do. We hear so many people in races saying, don't quit, don't quit. Uh, they already have the image of quitting. This will bring them down furthermore.
0: And so one of the things that athletes are going through when they're, as they're preparing for an ultra marathon is they tend to get focused on the race itself. Like, what am I going to do during the first part of the race, the middle part of the race and the last part of the race? What should I be saying to myself? What parts of this organic self-talk should I, um, uh, uh, should I like pull out to help maximize the performance or to not quit to your, to your phrase earlier. But the reality is, is that needs to be something that's honed in practice first and then executed during the race. Because just like any type of endurance training, there's there's like a chronic, I'm going, to use, I'm going to use a physiology word to describe this. There's a chronic adaptation that occurs where you practice yes. a skill a certain amount of time in whatever that dose response is. That's your wheelhouse. Maybe you can illuminate that for us. But you practice a skill a certain amount of time in practice. And then in the race, you have honed it in so much that it becomes something that is actually applicable.
1: Soft talk is purely a skill. It's something that we can train as much as we can. Uh, When we talk about organic self-talk, we can really compare it about, let's take, for example, um, elite athletes. In sports psychology, we try to study the best athletes and we derive a lot of things by studying them. Let's say some elite athletes have somehow a genetic predisposition to have a higher VO2. Maybe it's where they're born, um, their lifestyle, the environment um, supported their system to have a higher VO2. Some of them already have a really efficient organic self-talk. Organically, they use positive uh, keywords. Organically, they give themselves instructions. And we've done a lot of interviews and research work with elite, let's say, marathoners or elite athletes. And I always noticed that organically, they're already, they have the skill of really good, efficient self-talk that works best for them. If we want to go to sub-elite levels, intermediate and beginner athletes, then this organic self-talk, it's just like someone who has a low VO2 that we want to improve. Or low aerobic capacity that we want to improve. So if uh, you're telling me that a lot of ultra-runners when they're training they already focus so much on the race and what to say during the race. Uh, soft talks, A good soft talk strategy should be periodized. So in base training we try to focus on certain keywords to say just to keep the body relaxed enjoying the process something like this and then gradually when we come closer to the race Let's say you start with VO2 intervals about a couple of months earlier. With these intervals comes a different type of self-talk. And then during tempo phase comes a different type of self-talk. So we kind of narrow down towards the race. It's a build-up. Because if we start in base training to visualize and put keywords related to the race, if it's a four or five months preparation, I doubt there's, there's a lot of athletes that will sustain this mental focus. We will burn out mentally way before the race happens. We see a lot of athletes before, I've had this many times with athletes, that they would tell me two three weeks before a race. It really happens two weeks before a race. that So many of them would tell me, we really want the race to finish. We just want it right, to finish. We right. want it to pass. Yeah. They're not looking forward anymore for the race. Right. They're looking for the moment yeah. right after. It's because they were too much in the race during the whole preparation, yeah. starting in general phase. So they burnt
0: out. You know what's so interesting about that? I've never heard anybody describe the process of sports psychology in that way, but it really mirrors what we do from a training programming standpoint. So when we're when we're programming the X's and O's of training, one of the strategies that we use is we go from least specific to most specific from a physiological point of view. And in an ultramarathon setting, what that normally results in is you're doing Lower volume, higher intensity, far away from the race and higher volume, lower intensity, closer to the race. And then you get down to more specific elements. You're like, okay, well, if you're doing a mountainous race, you're going to do a lot of your climbing as you get closer to the race. And you can go on and on and on with the different details of iteration on that. But to hear that the psychological flow should mirror that a little bit, it's just absolutely fascinating. For
1: example, if we start to visualize a race let's say three, four months earlier, that's just too much because sometimes we prescribe athletes to do imagery sessions. Let's say it comes Mm. in parallel with specific training sessions. Uh, It's just too much to start too soon with race focus.
0: That's so, that's so, okay. We're going to get it. We're going to get into that structure because I I think that that's something to absolutely dig in. But I want to go back a minute. And you mentioned that a lot of the framework that sports psychologists used It trickles down from the best performers in the sport because they just have a natural, probably genetic knack for – self. you said this really interesting phrase, self-talk that works for them. I want you to describe that a little bit and – Are there any, although it is going to be individualized because the works for them piece connotates that this is an individual process. Yes, it is. What does that generally look like? And then what can any athlete, what are like the fundamentals that any athlete can take away from what we see in those high performers?
1: Okay. First, I would like to start, um, suppose we're starting with an athlete, ex-athlete, intermediate level. Um, let's say you're starting with an athlete. They come to you, they want They have an ultra, they want to run in a year from now. Um, I assume you start with just a few assessments to see where they stand 100%. aerobically yep. and all this. Yep. I like to do similar assessments just to explore their mental fitness or mental toughness. I would like to explore organically um, how much, how their goal orientation, their self-talk, their ability to visualize. All this can be actually assessed in depth if they give honest answers, of course, uh, <laughs> if they give honest answers, we can really understand their, uh, their mental toughness. So I can give, let's say, a certain score of their capacity. From that point, I start to build up gradually toward the, the event. If, if someone whom I'm helping, let's say in full coaching package, then okay, um, I, I would already periodize the, the sports psychology aspect with the physical training. If I'm cooperating with their coach, hopefully it's an open coach who would be fine so that we sit together and discuss the whole plan together because it's a long process. And I really like it to be going in parallel with the physical preparation because they're interrelated.
0: And so in that sense, let's just use our earlier framework of least specific to most specific and high intensity to low intensity The way that I'm, the way, the the way that I am thinking that this plays out in real time is that the, the cues of the self-talk during the high intensity, during the high intensity pieces are, are more intensive, right? They're more motivational. Hey, you can do this, push, push past the pain, all that other stuff. And then as it moves along to the low intensity pieces of it, it's more dissociative or, or maybe even components of relaxation
1: Um, it could be since it's something very individual, but with personally and with many athletes that I help, I've seen an opposite, uh, the opposite way I've seen, at least for me, I like to use dissociative methods Uh when I am, let's say in a 10 K race, I start to use dissociative methods on kilometer seven where the pain starts in a way to really hold that pace for just three more kilometers. This is where I like to just disconnect. And with good training, at least this is something I do in mental training, you can reach a point where you don't feel your legs much. You can actually disconnect from the pain,
0: really. Truly, uh, uh, hold on before. Uh, well, I think this is a great point. Let's like review what a dissociative strategy looks like, because a lot of people okay. that vocabulary, it's going to go all pun intended, right over their heads.
1: <laughs> okay, it's a strategy that we could use in order to somehow disconnect from disconnect um, from internal feelings. Um, it can be confused with self-talk a lot of athletes like i count for example this is my personal dissociative technique i like to count um in french foreign language it gives me something to focus on different from the body cues so like i I try to block them in a way some people like to focus on scenery i mean we do this in some ultra runs or something we focus on scenery um but this perhaps focusing on scenery would not work so well in marathon and less than a marathon. In right. terms of right. it would Work more in ultra runs because if we use external dissociation, it would perhaps bring us closer to a state that we call flow state where you're flowing. You're not really here. Uh, you're disconnected somehow. You're flowing. You're focused on, let's say the surrounding, the mountains, the views, the rain, perhaps you forget about the distance. The body is just moving you've trained it to move. So it's moving automatically. Um, this is something if you learn and practice it well and try to induce this flow state, which is part of dissociative techniques, um, you can be a great ultra marathon runner.
0: Okay. So that's dissociative. That's a dissociative strategy. Now there's a, there's a counterpart to that as well that a lot of athletes use. Why don't you describe that?
1: Uh, some athletes um, like to use, let's say, relax dissociative techniques on easier runs, let's say, so that they don't think of the race, just disconnect a bit, enjoy the surrounding. Yep. And then on harder workouts, they would use something more powerful. But it, it depends. It's something, again, very individual. We really need to discuss with the athletes to try to find out what suits them best. Uh, again, we see organically, what do they have? How is the influence on training? For example, I've had an athlete who's visualizing the race on easy jogs, and then you see it from the heart rate. Heart rate is high for nothing, absolutely nothing. (laughs) And then just a couple of weeks, same training, nothing has changed, same weather conditions. We shift their focus to something else, completely different, non-running related. And the heart rate was down by up to 10 beats. That's a lot, just because we reduced this excitement yeah ten beats is a lot. It's just if you're training on top of your aerobic capacity, it would put you on something different
0: well, and the counterpart that I was really alluding to that i was, that, that that I want to discuss as well are associative self talk strategies turning inwards and focusing on what is going on in your body, like how do your muscles feel, what is your breathing rate yes. look like do you have areas of discomfort, and we're going to talk about like why those are important skills to develop but when we talk about associative self-talk or inward looking strategies what are some other examples of that and use cases to where we we can can really link
1: this it's a a bit not far away from self talk self-talk is what actually directs our focus Mm -hmm. to these different strategies but uh this is perhaps can be considered a bit close to mindfulness yeah so um mindfulness somehow Let's say at least for runners, um, we can to give an example. Uh, let's say when you turn your focus internally, trying to just check up your body, see how it feels, these sensations. Uh, this is uh, this shows that you really have, a, if you develop this good capacity to scan your body, go to the little details. Like if you reach a point where you feel each toe, how you're grabbing the ground from your foot, yeah. then you're really on uh, this I tell this to my athletes. So it's like a self-assessment tool that you really have a good capacity to go internally, to shift your focus internally. And then you scan your body, let's say. And then in a split of a second, you tell yourself like it's time to go out. And then you start to scan your surrounding. This is external focus. So this ability to switch the focus, external, internal, uh, is quite a nice skill because you never know when you might need it and because we are able to shift the focus let's say externally then we are able to dissociate a bit from the physical sensation
0: and the 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 counterproductive part to either one of those strategies is continuing to use them when they become deleterious so an exa- I'll give the example on either one of those and then you can elaborate on it because you're the expert. So if you're using an, an internal strategy, you're really focusing on your toes grabbing the ground. But all of a yeah. sudden the pain that you are noticing because you're focusing so much internally gives you the cue to, okay, I need to slow down and or stop. This pain is too much for me to handle. The opposite happens if you start using if you start using the dissociative strategy too much as well, because you're disconnected from reality, your ability to focus in on a really intense effort can be, not always is, because you mentioned flow state, but can be diminished or you're just using that attention in an inappropriate way, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Uh, if you're using it in an appropriate way, it means uh, you still have a fair amount of um, concentration to switch between these right. types of, of focus. If you don't, then yes, it's dangerous. I've met a couple of athletes who have this capacity to completely dissociate. They're not, they're not here anymore. And then yes, when you have a certain pain, you just don't feel it anymore. Then that's, that's detrimental. No athletes wants to, wants to run over pain for another four or five hours and then end up having some severe injury. Then you'd have to stop. Yeah. Obviously. Um, so uh, this is perhaps why I truly recommend a lot of um, a lot of my athletes to try to switch always switch in one session just to switch between these types just to always keep this ability. Give a good just like a fartlek,
0: just the same way <laughs> psychological fartlek between lick. both three yeah. four
1: times in a row. Yeah. Um, a lot of athletes would let's say I would tell them to write uh, our mental strategy for the training here on their hand so they can see it. A lot of people would, would forget. So now let's say, okay, I'm jogging one hour and I know on the 30th minute I want to do a one minute just quick body scan and then I want to go externally again for two times. That's it. It's quite simple. It's just two, three minutes. Is that
0: long. so? Th- so let's get into the practical nuts and bolts of it, right? We, I think all athletes, they, they can they can wrap their heads around the fact that they need to improve their mental skills. They'll all, they'll all address it. But Mm -hmm. because there's no like training plan out there, they can't go to ultra running magazine or whatever publication they read and find, you know, 20 weeks to your best, you know, self-talk or mental, you know, or mental skills, uh, you know, 50 K or whatever it is, which exists in training all the time. Tuesday, yeah. go out and do an hour. Wednesday, do an hour and a half. Saturday is going to be your long run. You can find those static training programs everywhere, and it. Can, and my point with that is, is from the physical training standpoint, it gives everybody somewhat of a framework to work off of. You don't see that as much with with mental skills. No, not
1: as much because it's it's really individual. It right. depends on it's, a lot of factors. Um, it's tricky to do it on your own, but it's doable. At least for self-talk, we can do with the basics. I mean, with this experiment that we did on those people that did the 2K time trial, some of them improved in five weeks by 15 seconds. Wow, um, Just because of management, yeah. it's just management. It's not more than this. I mean, in five weeks, physically you will improve, but not to shave off 15 seconds off a 2K. But uh, if you checked, for example, I compared their splits these five weeks, okay, the last 400 was way faster than the first. Uh, The last uh, 1K was pretty much faster than the first 1K because we really tried to manage, create a self-talk plan that helps them manage their effort, not to start too fast, focus on certain things that allows time to pass somewhere in the middle because always uh, the second third is where you want time to pass fast. I had a Romanian coach, he used to say, My grandma can start fast. Everyone can start fast. <laughs> and then when I started to compete more and more, I noticed that we can always finish fast the last three, four hundred meters yeah, because true. of this adrenaline rush. Yeah, yeah. So it all comes down to the second, third.
0: Well, so in ultra marathon running, we have this great tradition of passing training advice down from one generation to the next. And when Mm -hmm. I first started coaching ultra marathon runners, that was the only source of information you had is what worked from the previous people before you. And then the previous people before them, there was very little literature that we could draw on that was specific to the sport. And so practice from a coaching perspective or from a physiological coaching perspective, it, it was a blend of extrapolating practice and research from the traditional endurance sports as well as taking what has been done in the past and seeing what works and what doesn't. What I'm hearing from you, and I've heard this from a number of people in the sports psych world, is that this individualization component to mental skills training is enhanced in an exponential way as compared to physical training. The static training programs that you find in the magazines, that might work for a you know a huge swath of people, but if you were to try to try to create that parallel in a sports psychology setting, it pro- it would be much more problematic.
1: Yes, um, you can find in a lot of magazines, a lot of blogs, quite the basics of uh, of mental training. Let's say goal setting, talk to yourself positively, something like this. But in in Self-talk and positive self-talk in specific. I like to keep it optimistic, not really positive. Yeah, optimistic, but mm-hmm. very much grounded and realistic. Because if you're trained to, let's say, um, run a half marathon in, let's say, one hour and a half. Uh, if you if you have good conditions, maybe you might run a bit faster, but not much faster. And uh, a few years ago, I was pacing a marathoner. Um, she was training to run it in three hours, 30. The maximal capacity. The data and everything says so. However, if you have good conditions, you might be able to run a few minutes faster. Um, maybe first 10K, she was running by 10 seconds faster per kilometer, just because she said, I feel nice. So by kilometer 28, she hit the wall badly, and then she had to walk. Uh, so the day was messed up just because of this. She forgot that it's a marathon. It's a long way to go, <laughs> even to feel nice in the beginning. Just Stick to the plan, stick to what the coach said. Obviously she didn't, but uh, uh, yeah, self-talk in a way I like to always put a high, pretty much high effort on the beginning of the race to keep the athlete grounded. Mm. Not too positive, really realistic for the first quarter, really realistic, stay to what the coach said, stick to the effort because we see a lot of people rushing and then they start to slow down gradually. This is mm. something we don't really want. So a really realistic soft talk for the beginning, like stick to the pace, don't get excited too much. Um, race your own race. Try not to follow someone else. Uh, the race is long, and an ultra really race is really long. It's a long journey. It's not just a race. I like to call it a journey. You have a lots of ups and downs. Um, a lot of ultra runners here in Greece, we always, when we start to plan the races, we always say there will there will be a low point in the race. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we make a plan how to overcome this low point. Uh, basically, we try to analyze their previous low points. What happened? What were they thinking of during this low point? What made it lower? So when we investigated what actually happened during the low point, we tried to find different uh, answers for this uh, for these uh, states that they were at. For example, we figured out that one guy actually started faster, but then there's another guy who had the knee irritation, and he had the low point from this. From this knee irritation, he felt, maybe I'm not fit enough for this. The moment he said this to himself, it just brought him down and down and down. So we try with the athletes to really find answers. This is a good strategy for ultra running because – you're, you're out there for many hours. It's not just a few words and a few dissociative techniques to block. It's not a tanky or a half marathon. It's it's a journey out there. If you sit now on one day, you sit and you just reflect. When you're running, long runs, you might be reflecting over a lot, a lot of things. Try to write down what you're reflecting. You may write down, I don't know, um, half, half a booklet. That's a lot of thoughts ongoing. So for, a, for an ultra run, we... We need to try to start with the negatives, get answers for those, Mm. the major negatives, at least. And then from that point, we try to introduce a bit of motivation here and there. But what works best, I believe, for an ultra run is not really direct motivational self-talk, but goal-oriented self-talk to remember why you're here doing this. This works best because it's not uh, it doesn't pump you like specific motivational self-talk. I mean, we can see those who do long jumps or high jumps. It's quite an explosive sport. They shout in the beginning. They say something yeah. that pumps them. Yeah. Maybe they they slap themselves. We've yeah. seen this. Or yeah. they stop. Uh, they slap their legs, and then this is it. They explode. Yeah. On ultra run, you cannot really use this type of sharp motivation. I would prefer to stay to stick to something goal oriented, like. Um, Maybe you can write it on a piece of paper even. Like, why am I here? What do I love most about the sport? Uh, stuff like this. It would help us uh, really stay rooted to why we're doing this. For a lot of ultra runners, perhaps it's ultra running comes with this spiritual aspect, perhaps.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: they can get con- they can try to get connected to it. But it's a bit difficult for those who are competing, Then it's more delicate. For those who are competing, let's say I ran once an ultra distance a few months ago, um, just crossing a certain distance, crossing ridges. It was so easy to get into the flow state and just really disconnect. I I didn't realize I'm a couple of kilometers ahead ahead of my buddies because I wasn't really there. I was just, let's say, I call it sinking in my own thoughts. (laughs) I was thinking of different, I like philosophy, I was just thinking. And I was there with my thoughts. But in a race setup, I wouldn't imagine that this would do me so well. Mm. Not well at all. I need to be fully focused.
0: Well, a, lo- a lot of athletes, a lot, especially ultramarathon athletes, they view mental skills through this lens of preventing the ultimate negative, which is dropping out, right? Especially yeah. at the 100-mile distance. And I've used this exercise um, with my athletes who – are, who have dropped out of a race before, and maybe they might be chasing cutoffs and things like that, but it can be universally, universally, universally applied. And whenever they've been in that really bad situation, whether it resulted in a DNF or they just, you know, quit for several hours, which happens in the middle of a hundred mile run, uh, quite frequently. Um, I have them go and revisit that and draw out the scenario and sometimes literally journal out, both the tactical things that went on to create that, which is what we normally focus on. I didn't eat enough. I didn't drink enough. I went too hard here, you know, whatever, like the physical things that actually went on, but also how they internalized all of those and then ask them to re, and then I asked them to recreate that story to try to change it. Like what would they do in the exact same situation to try to change it? And then the advanced intervention that I've used with athletes is to have them internalize the worst situation that they have, that they could completely contrive in their head. They get lost. It's the middle of the night. They've been just been chased by a bear. They've bonked their crew, miss them like all 10 things, all 10 bad things like kind of come down all at the same time. Then what would you do? Like, what would you do tactically? And then how would you internalize what was going on? to get out of that situation. And most of the times, like sitting there in their chair, they can come up with the answer, right? They can come up with the answer for the tactical things that they can do, but also the psych, like the psychology that goes behind getting out of that situation. And I've found that the athletes that have got, kind of gone through that, they can get themselves, they can get themselves out of like pretty hairy pinches, you know, that where they have screwed up in a race or had something bad happen to them or, or whatever. So there's this aspect of like training, Right. There actually is like a cause and effect piece of where you, you can have athletes like mentally put themselves in those situations. And then when the time comes, it's not always going to be exactly the same, but they can draw upon figuring out the solutions to that.
1: A, a bad DNF is just like a bad breakup. You really need to try to understand what went on and make peace with it. If you don't make peace with it by understanding what went on, it will be so hard to move on. But, of course, in, in races, a lot of bad things can happen that we don't have really control over. And how to deal with it and to stay calm is, a, is quite a difficult skill. Um, whenever I'm working with track athletes, at least during pre-race uh, preparation, I try during, uh, let's say, one of their intervals to ask them to stop the interval, pause for three, four seconds, as if they fell. Mostly, I do this with steeplechasers. Yeah. So as if they fell, and then they have to catch up with their uh, with their teammates gradually to really learn how to catch up gradually and not to rush and lose everything. Psychology is um, in, in ultra running is a lot about just being in that situation yeah. and learn how to deal with it. Bad weather, we have to be out in bad elements to learn how to run in rain or snow or whatever. You have to learn how, if you get lost, you have to have good navigational skills to learn how to catch back your track again. If you don't go through those in training, and if you get them in a race setup, then it's difficult for sure.
0: Yeah, I I like the, the scenario recreation tool. That's that's my layman's term for it. By the way, I know there's probably a, a proper a yeah. proper name for it, but but I like I like contriving those scenarios in a training environment, and then using that as the tool to actually what happens on race day. It's never exactly the same, but there are always certain certain parallels to it.
1: Um, uh, we try to do a lot of the scenarios, and then we try to find answers for those, like what to tell yourself if you right. got lost, what to tell yourself if. We drop something. Um, we try to just list as much things that might happen and try to find logical answers. Once we read and review those logical answers, if it really happens to you, you can talk yourself out of it. Yeah. It's like having a, an advisor with you, telling you, it's okay, it has happened. And now we will do this, now we will do that, we will shift, we will slow down, whatever. Um, so to really get into self-talk, you need to start
0: with a journal to write down things. So I was going to get into this uh, kind of at the end, but let's go, let's go into it now. What are some of like the low hanging fruit, uh, mental skills and or self-talk skills that athletes can start to implement that'll move, that'll move the needle for them a little bit. And then the next thing I want to go into is this, this very initial self-assessment that they can take to see what, ch- like what, what interventions might be the most effective for a particular inter- individual. So let's kind of go through the range and then let's go through how a person can tailor that range
1: down. Okay. And mental toughness, let's say we can start, let's suppose we have a pyramid. The bottom of the pyramid is goal setting. So if an athlete doesn't have a coach and a structured plan, it's really hard to pro- to proceed to the next things. If an athlete comes to me and they're, let's say, on beginner to intermediate level and they don't actually plan their week, they don't have a calendar or a journal to plan the week, then it's tricky to proceed with the next things. Now, from goal setting, where they want to go, any specific races, why they do this, this is the foundation that we really need to know. Mostly an athlete really has to understand why they're practicing the sport in the beginning. So this is the foundation. After that comes... um, uh, mindfulness. So mindfulness, a bit of meditation skills, this combination of, uh, the ability to shift the focus internally, externally, a bit of it, and then comes self-talk and imagery in parallel because they influence each other quite a lot. And then beyond self-talk and imagery comes, um, uh, confidence control, arousal control, anxiety control. And, uh, above that comes flow state. This is basically the highest thing.
0: You've got, you, you've you got a lot of steps here. And I think a lot of people want to skip to flow state because that's like the sexy thing that they all hear about. Yeah. But what I'm hearing from you is start with the basics, set your goals first as your initial framework, yes. and then become more mindful. And you can do that on a run. You can do that in a more of a, I guess, what would be described as a traditional meditative setting?
1: Yes, but recently I've been trying, and I I like to use active, I call it uh, active mindfulness, where you use mindfulness in an active setup while jogging, let's say, or preferably, this is something I personally do, and the the closest athletes to me, is uh, during the mobility before running in the morning, first thing in the morning. So we're Breathing, doing the mobility, trying to feel our body and the mobility workout that we have somehow goes from tiptoes to just every single joint. So you're scanning the body, you're really focused internally. And then once we move out to start the jog, we go external, a bit of both. So this is is a good practice to start with.
0: Yeah, and I found that a lot of athletes, they they have an easier time adopting that mindfulness practice with a simple body scan because it gives an order to what they're trying to do. I mean, we're rational human beings and a lot of runners are like super analytical people. So if you tell them to start at the head and then go to the toes or start at the toes and then go up to the head and just giving that framework for it, they're like, okay, I can get it. There's a start point and there's an end point just like a race. And,
1: and once you develop all this package, then you have succeeded in developing your own routines, mm-hmm. and routines are very important. Uh, however, uh, I don't like anyone to be too much hooked up by their own routines because you never know what might happen for a race, <laughs> on
0: the race. You can't be too because rigid. Some people
1: are too attached to routine. If something changes, then they will say, oh, "I haven't warmed up the right way. I will not race well." So Uh, this is something also we want, we don't
0: want. Everybody has experienced this when they miss their crew at an aid station, right? Their crew doesn't show up and it complete, like I've seen athletes get inordinately flustered that they didn't get their super specific chocolate gel at mile 32 and they had to settle for the raspberry gel that was on the aid station table. And afterwards, I just look at them. I'm like, you really think that that made that much of a difference, right? The flavor of the gel (laughs) that you had, like in the whole context of things out of the tens of thousands of steps that you took and the hundred miles that you ran or whatever the race was, you think that that one pivotal point was that impactful or was it how you reacted to it? Yes. Okay. So we've got this framework of Goal setting first, mindfulness second, self-talk third, control fourth, and then flow fifth in a sequential order for athletes to actually yeah. work through.
1: Self-talk and imagery come in parallel. Yep. You can choose what to start first, What? but I prefer to start with self-talk because imagery needs a, you just have to sit and do it sometimes. So this is like an extra step. Like you start to say, okay, three times a week, I want to do specific imagery, 15 minutes This is an extra step. Now, if the athlete doesn't stretch already, so I prefer that they stretch and they skip the imagery and we do some self-talk. It's a a bit quicker with self-talk and uh, I wouldn't say more efficient, but um, I mean, imagery is good if you somehow have an injury, something like this. Uh, It it might help you not to lose specific skills or to be motivated, but uh, self-talk can have a direct effect on performance simply because you're learning to manage your capacity.
0: So now we've got this framework of what to start with, and then how to logically progress through yes. the like this hierarchy of needs, almost from a mental skills standpoint. Yeah, and then we've also looked at it chronologically throughout the season of where we're focusing on kind of more rounded skills, you know, or more generalized skills. Like early in the this season, this permit to-
1: can go in parallel with uh, with the preparation to an event, right? So, for example, in base training phase, you can just uh, understand your goals, understand some things, do light stuff like the mindfulness, uh, and then gradually start to go and narrow down towards your event. Let's say imagery should be really interrelated with your race, then it's race-specific phase.
0: Right. So, And that's what I was getting to. We've got this framework in terms of... Like the complexity of the skill, like how an athlete, it's just like you can, you have to walk before you run, right? Everybody knows that analogy and that's because walking is an easier skill than running is to learn. Same thing with a high jump, right? You, you evoked that earlier. You have to learn your run up before you can learn the takeoff, right? It's the same, same exact thing. And so we've got that framework, goal setting, mindfulness, self-talk and imagery control and then flow. And then we've got a chronological setup of like least specific to most specific, just to try to generalize it. Right. Where all the race stuff kind yeah. of comes out at the very end. So then the third question is how does the, how does an athlete not to put you out of business? Cause I know this is, this is like what you do. <laughs> how can an athlete look at themselves and say, I need to work more on this and less on these. Hmm. Cause this is what you do initially when you when you intake an athlete, right? You, you assess what they naturally do. And I'm assuming that you can come up with, okay, they have really well-developed skills here and not so well-developed skills. there. are now you've been able to do that because you're an expert in the field and you can pick those it's things a bit out. It's
1: tricky to, to do it on your own. It's actually really tricky because I hear a lot of people saying, let's say we're watching an event. Um, I would use, I will keep using uh, um, examples from track and field simply because you can see it in front of you. Yeah. Uh, compared to an ultra where you hear what the athlete is saying and you might see them a bit. So you see, let's say a lot of people saying, oh look at this athlete. Mm. He's mentally not so strong. He's letting go always towards yeah. the end. Uh, it kills me when I hear this because I feel like actually, no, they're not letting go. They, they started just a bit too fast. They just, Physiologically, you might not be able to hold it anymore. Now, it's not always mental; it might be, but mm-hmm. not always. Yeah. But it could be more physiology. What led them to letting go on the third, uh, on the second third of the race? And okay, it goes back to poor management, perhaps. So to do self-assessment, uh, and of course, this athlete, when they finish, they will hear people like this say, "Why did you let go?" And they will be like. I don't know,
0: yeah they, right. they get confused, yeah. it
1: confuses them, yeah. and it will bring them back mentally more and more. it will bring them to a low point, it will kill their confidence actually.
0: Yeah. yeah
1: but in reality, they are capable much more than you think. they are capable of let's say sticking to the athlete if they stayed uh I don't know, they didn't start pushing too much from the beginning in in the uh, world half marathon championship if I'm not mistaken i I saw a couple of athletes just surging from the beginning. And they didn't even make it to top 10. I was terrified when I saw it. I was looking at these top athletes and asking myself, why are they pushing the pace from the beginning? And they're the best in the world. We can even see this pattern of low capacity to control arousal mm-hmm. and excitement, right. even in the best athletes. Right. But what you're getting
0: at so, is it's, it's hard to do this psychological assessment turn, yes. like as, as a person looking at themselves, like I need, I have these skills and I don't have these skills. And you, you compare that to a physical setting. Most runners will know, Hey, I'm good at mountain terrain or I'm good at the marathon distance. Or I'm, I really suck when I move down to the 1500 meters or whatever, because they have this, they have a very tangible compare and contrast with their competitors and with other PRs and things like that. What, yeah. what I'm hearing yeah. from you is, is, it's it's extremely difficult to have that uh, to have that assessment internally with an individual person, and those are the can, those are yes. the people that need to be candidates that need to go seek a specialist. Yeah, Special. but
1: um, do make it really simple as simple assessments or simple um, aspects of sports psychology or mental training that we most athletes should try to have answers to is first of all start with the why, what makes you run. Not really why, I like to ask what. What makes you run? What makes you wake up and do your training every day? What makes you consistent? Or, if you lack consistency, what makes you lack consistency? Okay, you'd say family, work, stuff like this. That's acceptable. And then you'd ask yourself different questions like, how can I try to be consistent even with the life constraints? Yeah. So stuff like this will allow you to really be a bit more confident to learn how to to understand that you're actually putting some effort to manage your time. And then you can go to more delicate stuff. Um, Why am I afraid on the downhills compared to my peers? Mm. Why can they run downhill better and I'm physically better than them? So once we ask ourselves about our weaknesses, then we're making a step forward by understanding first, what's the obstacle? Mm. Once we highlight the obstacle, then gradually without feeling it we will start to overcome.
0: That's so interesting because I've I've seen this year with the COVID pandemic, it has completely exposed athletes that don't have very strong whys. Because they yes, don't yes,
1: be, I fully agree.
0: They, yeah. They don't have they because they don't have the races to Act as a band aid or a temporary cover up for that strong internal why, because yeah. they just chase race, yeah. to race to race to race race, and that work. I mean, as we see now, right? That works to a certain extent, but is not as powerful as saying, okay, if all of these like bright shiny objects just went away tomorrow, which happened. I mean, like, we literally had that scenario happen with COVID. What are you going to do? And the athletes with a really strong why they kind of got out of bed every morning and they figured it out. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. They had to go through things that are difficult and they had to kind of readjust and things like that. Mm-hmm. But the athletes without a strong why, they kind of fell off the face of the earth. You know, there are no races to train for, so why am I going to get out of bed at 5 a.m.? Yeah.
1: In the first phase of this pandemic, I've noticed that athletes that did well, um, even with the cancellation of races, are those who have really good this uh, mindful mindfulness capacity that's well-developed. Because some of their whys were beyond races. And I always try to develop this with some of my athletes. To to teach them to go beyond events. Beyond, like, goals not to be event-related. Goals to be sensations. Mm -hmm.
0: The sensation
1: of running itself. Track, mountain, whatever it is. Just the feelings of running itself. Once they are grounded, and this is their why. Like, if you ask me why do you wake up every day early in the morning to run, I'll tell you. I just love to run. Yeah. If Even if there's a race, okay, that's nice if there's a race. If there isn't a race, it's also the same. Nothing changes because um, I'm rooted and grounded to just the sensations that I get from the run itself. And um, I try to teach some of my athletes to t- really try to, to stay grounded to this. And if they are really orient- race-oriented, With time, we try to shift their focus from this race orientation towards their inner sensations. It's also a skill. Once they start to learn to feel it again, then, okay, it becomes a bit different. Because I wouldn't say I blame, but part of it comes from when they started to run, they were too much motivated by races, the coaches, the events. This type of orientation, on the long run, is not so good. Because if we, with some discussions with elite athletes... We saw that, okay, they're definitely driven to break world records or certain records, but they they just love to do the activity itself. Um, I've had a lot of elite runners, uh, I've heard them say that they never felt they're compromising anything or sacrificing anything because they just love to run Mm -hmm. as much as they can. In that case, they put some effort to run, not so much. Not get injured, but they just love to run one, two, three times a day. For them, it's they love it. They want to be out doing it, and this is what helps them succeed at ease. So they don't really put effort to, let's say, cut a bit social life or stuff like this. No, it's never a, a sacrifice. They just yeah. love it.
0: You know, this finding your why it's become kind of cliche recently. You know, with the emergence yes. of a lot of sports <laughs> psychology tools and. I mean, I remember several years ago, I, I personally went through this, uh, through this exercise to kind of like reground myself, and it and it ended up being really beneficial throughout 2020 because I could kind of come back to it. But I drew on the work of Simon Sinek, who wrote this book, "Find Your Why." It's a it's mainly a business book, but I think that there's a lot of practical uh, sports applications for it. And the nickel version of it was is I took all of the things. That I did consistently without prompting, like just all the things in my life that I didn't have to do, but I did yeah. anyway, just because I enjoyed doing them. And the three, the the three things were running. I always run. I don't, and I and I didn't know why before this. I always ran. I, I'm part of a 5013C. I'm on the board of this 5013C here that manages a section of trail uh, near Pike yeah. Peak. And the third thing is, is I just love mentoring other coaches. So I did all these three things consistently. Nobody has to pay me for them. I don't get paid to be a runner, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get paid to be on uh, the board of my five one three That That is definitely the case. But what strings together those three activities that I enjoy them so much that I'll do them without prompt, without compensation, and, I in, and I'll sink copious amounts of time into it. And the thing that I came away from is, is they're better after I have interacted with them than they were at the start. I just like seeing that progress, right? I like seeing progress run. I see like I like seeing the progress on the trail that we work on. And I like seeing progress in other in other coaches. Mm-hmm. And I was able to use that, that's a really nickel version of the entire framework that I used to, to draw that out, but I was able to use that. And then during the COVID pandemic, when all this stuff went away, it didn't bother me. Right. Cause I was like, Oh, I just like seeing myself improve. Right. That's why I like running. Yeah. I don't know if that's something that you've experienced with the athletes that you, the high performance uh, athletes that you've worked with that are trying to figure out, like, why am I doing this thing in the first place?
1: For some? Yes. But it just, uh, again, it's something very individual. Uh, it just depends on the story of the runner. What's their background? What brought them to running in the first place? Uh, A quick exercise I like to do with a lot of funders is to ask them if they can remember first time running or first time participating Mm -hmm. in an event. Uh, How was it? How did it go? Or if they were having really pressure for a certain event, I try to ask them to recall a good performance, just a good performance. And I have noticed that a lot of them would say that they went to this race not really thinking about it so much. Um, they went to relax. It's not like um, everything, although it is everything, but they went in the mentality that we're just going to enjoy. We're just going to do something we like to participate in an event. And eventually they did well, but they improved. And with time, let's say comes pressure from media, pressure from clubs, from peers to do better and better and better. And here, okay, things have changed pressure from sponsors. This is quite common elite
0: runners. And I've always, I've always seen just in practice that the runners that have already either intentionally, or in some cases, just unintentionally by a consequence of their upbringing, they're really grounded in why they're doing what they're doing. It doesn't matter how they get to that end point, right? Whether they've gone through an intentional process, or they just kind of kind of quote, unquote, get it. But the ones that have that grounding I always think that they're going to overperform as they're going to, they're always going to run above their pay grade, I guess is what I'm saying, right? Going back to our physiological and psychological model, they're always going to perform at a higher percent of their physiological capacity because of that grounding. And because of that strong why that they have. Yeah.
1: The why is, is quite simple. And as you said, it's becoming a cliche and I've seen it a lot recently on so many blogs. Uh, but the reason why we start with the why is because it, it it can make you reflect to different aspects. For example, if I ask you now, what makes you run? What makes you run?
0: Because I like
1: to see progress. Okay. Um, what are you seeking from running?
0: The enjoyment that I derive from seeing okay. where I am now compared to where I was at a previous point in time.
1: Okay. What do you want to reach with this running?
0: No, I, I, I've never viewed it as an end goal. I've always viewed it as small, iterative processes of okay. what I just mentioned. Continually getting better compared to where I was a month ago, a year yes. ago.
1: Okay, that's good. Um, the way you're, you have your goals somehow is really internal and performance-oriented rather than event-oriented. So, for example, if, if you are um, a half-marathoner, you would, um, you don't really, I feel that you might not really need races. You can track yourself with simple time trials, your improvement. That's good. Some athletes say, ah, oh, we cannot, we just, no races, nothing, because they're <laughs> event oriented. Um, and uh, from the pandemic, yes, it uh, a lot of sports psychologists shifted their focus by trying to really help athletes to be performance oriented rather than only external goal oriented nothing really internal
0: yeah it was a hard shift i mean i know this was i've said this a number of times in interviews and written about it in articles yeah 2020 was definitely my most challenging year as a coach is also my most rewarding year as a coach even though there are no results to show from it right but the reward was in the challenge and seeing athletes progress going back to that word right in 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 different ways. Thank you for the, for the assessment there. I feel like uh, I need to like (laughs) lie down on a couch or something like that. The next time we get on the horn, (laughs) I didn't know we were going to get into that. So that's totally cool. Um, Okay. Let's kind of wrap, let's wrap this up, man. I I can't tell you how fascinated I am with this area and how much I I appreciate your time. Um, We've, I think all athletes recognize this need to improve their mental skills. And one of the ways that they can do that is through self-talk. But as we mentioned earlier, it's hard for a lot of athletes to know where to start because the framework is just hard to, to wrap their yeah, heads around. And yeah. It's very individualized. But if they take some low-hanging fruit and at least get the ball rolling, yes. that is a big yeah. part in this whole process. Just start, right? And the things that they can start out with are finding a strong why that connects everything, goal setting, mindfulness, and then self-talk and imagery. Those, those things you can tell, you can tell people how important they are across the whole thing. But I think that any athlete with no mental skills training can at least start with those and get a pretty decent amount of progress done.
1: Like for example, you as a coach, um, you use training peaks. You already do a lot of the goal setting work for the athletes. They just open training peaks. They see the weekly training. They know, okay, today I have this and this and that they would schedule their, uh, Uh, let's say their work meetings and whatever according to all this so you already have done you laid down a foundation for their goal setting event uh, okay initially before you lay down this whole training they already have a goal periodized plan so you've done a huge chunk from their goal goal uh, goal setting phase now yes it is important to reconnect and know a bit why they're doing this whenever things become a bit hard especially in those cold early mornings (laughs) Or warm summers, at least for me. Yeah. I summers, so <laughs> so uh, try to reconnect with these things a bit. And then, yes, choose. I like the athlete to choose what suits them best. If they feel like they need this, they're too anxious, too race-driven, then, yes, mindfulness would be something nice to work on. And then, yes, just work on mindfulness for a month, let's say. Do mindful stretching, a basic body scan just twice a week, or once you wake up, it takes, it takes a minute, really. Right. right. If you want to make it more developed, like personally, I don't like this one-hour meditation stuff if you're not completely into meditation. But for athletes to improve performance, meditation is good. But I, I've never experienced someone actually getting this full benefit from, let's say, half an hour meditation. Yeah. It just takes so much time. If you're a busy athlete, then you could use this half an hour somewhere else. Maybe stretching would be more beneficial. Everyone skips that, I know. So, <laughs> We're
0: pretty so bad about a bit
1: it. of mindfulness within the stretching. Try to feel the muscle fibers or imagine them a bit. Um, a lot of research showed like if you imagine your muscle fibers um, building up after a hard workout, you can actually accelerate recovery. Some research even showed that if you imagine. Uh, that you're developing more capillaries during a jog, that you will actually develop more capillaries. God, so these that, are little basic stuff to be done. All
0: that research is just so fascinating. The fact that you can yeah. actually control that psychologically and you really shouldn't be able to is just absolutely amazing. I'm sorry, you can really look.
1: assess yourself with imagery, let's say. Yeah, right. By Let's say now Im- you can imagine yourself uh, holding, let's say, two-kilo dumbbell with one hand let's say right hand, and then try to do a curl. But let's imagine five kilo and try to feel it, and then 10, and then 15. I've had a lot of, let's say when I'm giving a lecture, a lot of people say, ah, 15, it's too much. And I realized that they actually felt the weight. They got into this internally because they were a sport audience. Everyone have done a bicep curl, let's say. And some people were like, we've reached the limitation. And then I asked them, okay, You've used your right hand, of which I've used now a bit quickly. And if I put both here, the right hand is actually a bit warmer. It's actually sweating, not the left one. So this is quite basic and quick. It activated my right arm. Everything is ready to perform. Uh, Capillaries are ready. It's ready. So this is a basic assessment of imagery. If some people would tell me, "Mm, no, I didn't really feel it, then I know their imagery area needs some more
0: work Mm, so there's an actual there's an actual like physiological manifestation of doing some of this imagery work that shows up in a very real setting yes golly it's so fascinating man all right we're gonna let you go this is great Um, maybe we can bring you or one of your colleagues back on and we can go like over all of that fascinating research. Cause that's just, I mean, that's, that's stuff that's just mind blowing, right? The fact that these things actually happen in a mindfulness, a meditation setting or imagery setting and things like that. I just, I just, I just can't get enough of it, but I really appreciate your time. Um, why don't you take a second, tell listeners where they can find you and a little bit more about your work.
1: Okay. Um, I studied sports psychology in the University of Thessaly in Greece. And uh, soon I'll be starting my PhD in self-talk in specific. That's my field of research. Um, I basically work online um, just by via contacting me on Instagram, let's say, quite basic. And then we do most of our work via Zoom calls. Uh, usually if I'm working one-on-one with an athlete, it will be one to two calls a week, not more than this especially once we reach practical phase where we do just two calls a week, no more than half an hour. Usually, um, I like to use either final search or if the athlete has training peaks to lay down the actual, um, mental skills program on it. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it.
0: That's awesome. Thank, thank you for what you do. I, I think practitioners like yourself that can blend the research side and the practice side, as we were talking about earlier, yeah. you guys you folks are extremely beneficial in the sports science world and it is not it is not an easy uh it's not easy to correlate those two and actually kind of come out and practice especially yeah. in your field so i'm very appreciative of it of it
1: it's All always right. my pleasure to really spread how things work and to help in developing uh sports psychology and athletes
0: awesome we'll keep doing it man we'll uh, revisit this sometime soon thank you And there you go, folks. Much thanks to Kareem for coming on the podcast today. I have to say that that was one of my favorite episodes to record. I've put some links in the show notes to where you can find Kareem and learn a little bit more about his work if you want to sharpen up your mental skills. And speaking of the season, ultra season is coming around. The races are coming back online. And if you think that one of our coaches can help you out with any big, hairy, and audacious goals you have, hit me up on social media. It's at Jason Coop with a K, either on Twitter or on Instagram, or you can check out any of our coaching packages at www.trainright.com. We would love to see how we can help you achieve your goals for this year. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.